Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The eyes to the left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty and I'm joined today by Mirror columnist Alison Phillips and my colleague Dan Bloom. And we're going to be discussing Prime Minister's questions, uh, Brexit, obviously, sorry about that, but it has to be done, and the 100th anniversary this week of some women getting the vote. Mm-hmm. That was interesting because at the top of Prime Minister's questions today, the Prime Minister marked the anniversary and said the 100th anniversary of women getting the vote and Labour women heckled her saying, some, some. Yes. So it's quite an important distinction, but it was the start of a process. And one of the reasons we're very glad to have Alison here is because your column this week is all about that. And I was kind of interested that you said that, you know, there's been progress but it hasn't been very swift. And yeah, I'm just I, wanting... I think that's exactly it. I think we have to regard it very much as a work in progress. A um, hundred years is a very long time, and uh, all women now have the vote. Um, but we have still only really got about a third, around about a third of the MPs are women, um, which is a lot better than we were even 10 years ago. But there's still a, a certain distance to go. and. Only really when you get to that sort of 50% tipping point are you then able to change the culture within Parliament, which I think we've discussed many times before, which remains quite a, a male-dominated culture. And the, the issue here is that if it's got a kind of male dominance, they focus on male issues and or they exclude issues which are important to women. Yes. I, I don't think you can um, say that because someone's a man, he can't empathise or understand certain issues. Um, but I think until you have true equality in the uh, legislative process, you aren't really going to have true equality in the wider world. And that's, that's why it's so important, because partially it's about what is being done in that process, but it's partially about how it is perceived. And until it is perceived by the wider public as an as a entirely equal process, it's difficult to have the same amount of faith in it. Yeah. One of the statistics I, I read today, which I, I hadn't actually realised, was that you only got female life peers in 1958. Yeah, which is... Uh, and that's kind of very recent in terms of the sweep of history. And, and, and that kind of under-representation still exists. I mean, Labour's a lot better now. It's almost, you know, the shadow cabinet's 50-50. But it is. The number of Labour MPs is, is nudging above 40%. Tories, it's still... It is, but the only reason Labour got to that position, if we're honest, is because they went for the women-owned shortlist, which at the time was hugely controversial. And a lot of people are entirely opposed to quotas and short, you know, all-women shortlists. But if you want to change the culture, sometimes you have to do something quite dramatic to get to that point. So that maybe in the future you don't need to carry on doing that because you've you, you've done it. It's just a short-term injection to change the balance. Yeah, and, and this kind of idea that kind of you know the Tories are very resistant 
to organ shortness and and they see it as kind of what tokenism yes, or they, they do. don't feel they yeah. don't feel it's kind of meritocratic or... yeah they feel everybody should get everywhere on merit and which is absolutely fine if if we all began on a level playing field but the harsh reality of life is, is there isn't a level playing field because you've got um a, a whole sort of societal issue around it making it still easier for men to progress in politics and it remains a very confrontational issue. I mean, there's there's a great bit in um, Jess Phillips's book that I was reading earlier in the year. This is the Labour MP. The Labour MP. How, how to be a woman. Yes. Very charismatic. So fantastic. And quite a lot of fun, Jess. We know we like her. Yeah, and the book is extraordinary to read because it's uh, it's almost takes your breath away in that she's utterly fearless and she just says everything that she she thinks, and but she does a, a whole chapter, I think on listing some of the women that were elected through women only shortlists and saying, are you really telling me that these people don't deserve to be MPs and they've got like endless qualifications and like a, a lifetime careers in in uh, working in public policy. So so it wasn't that they were taking second rate contenders, it's just ensuring that those women who would otherwise have been wheedled out of the process remained in the process. Yeah. And Dan, you know, you've been working now in Parliament for, for a couple of years. And what's your kind of impression of it as a kind of place to work? Do you find it, you know, it is still very male dominated, is it? Well, it is when you're in the chamber and there's an argument going on because, you know, male booming voices just carry. And that so much of it is about what that space is like. The chamber is much smaller than you think it is. It's a lot louder than you think it is. And it's, it can be a lot more claustrophobic than maybe it looks on TV. And you've got people trying to speak if you've got someone down in the front benches and they've got people shouting behind them at the, op- at the other side and at the other side shouting yeah. at them. It's quite hard to know what's going on and it's not consultative or, or friendly in any yeah. way. Theresa May was, was saying this this week that it's some, some of it's about style. She was saying that uh, some people may differ, of course, but she was saying as a woman... I uh, work more with a team, I'm more consultative, it's more about the discussion uh, rather than you know, mansplaining, mm. it wasn't her word. And I think it's, it's, it's not even just a man-woman thing, I think a, a lot of men don't enjoy that sort of bombastic kind of well, nature. <laughs> no, and so those men have also been sort of pushed aside slightly in the process as well. And it seems wrong to me that you have to be a certain type of person and that type is something that's more likely to come in a male package than, than, than any other type of person. If you've got the, the passion and the skill for the job, you should be able to thrive. Um, but then people say to me, oh, you're making a big old fuss about nothing. We've got one woman prime minister. What's, you know, but it's taken, you know, it took from, from women getting the vote, it took, um, well, it took till 1979 to get the first prime minister, then it took another quarter of a century to get the second woman prime minister. It is all very much tortoise pace. Yeah, and, and the other stats out today showing that we languish very badly compared to other countries. Yeah, I think countries. it's 47th, mm. I think, we're in, in, compared with in, in, in the rest of the world, out in the places like Burundi and Cuba. Alison and... is very helpfully referring to her article. Here. I am, I am. <laughs> well, I refer to it as the Wigan Athletic of gender equality. <laughs> <laughs> do read it in all good news agents and supermarkets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and what do we think about kind of uh, Theresa May? I mean, Margaret Thatcher infamously didn't appoint a single woman to her no. cabinet. I mean, Theresa May has been slightly better on that. There are a number of women, though, not you know, mm. it's not half and half. But is she, is she is, you know has she championed women's rights? Is she is she um, on their side? I think she did some work when she was at the Home Office, um, and I think um, she has appointed people on merit. Um, it's unfortunate she hasn't got a wider pool of MPs to choose between. That's the unfortunate thing because. 
without a, a, a good gender balance at the basic level of MPs, it, it gets more difficult to, to appoint people. Because no one wants a woman to get a top job just because she's a woman if she doesn't have the requisite skills. Yeah. And this, I, we should say, it doesn't just apply to MPs as well. No. It's just, I mean, you know, the, the Mirror for a long time didn't have a female reporter in its politics team we do no, now that's true. Yeah. I, and it's the, the press gallery is very male dominated it's actually got worse in my lifetime when really? i started there were five female political editors why do you think it's got worse I, I, it's it's a difficult question i think it, it's just sometimes it's just happenstance that you know mm. um but you know certain jobs just went that way i think a big problem is is, is the hours it's a yeah. very anti-social hours mm. you're working from quite late at night because parliament mm. sits late so it has a knock-on effect on and I, women still are the ones who predominantly go home yes, to look after yeah. children. Like, there's no way of avoiding that. Yeah. It shouldn't happen. There should be better parental sharing. But well, so I, I learned this week that the first woman political correspondent at all in the press gallery was in 1964 oh for The gosh. Observer. I didn't realise it was quite that late. Yes. But it's, it's just a combination of things. You know, you've got a huge variety of... Uh, types of people and, and beliefs and that sort of thing and, and political outlets for their papers in the press gallery but overall it's still wood panelled, it's still got these yes. sort of, uh, you know, sports club type yes. tables with the chairman of, of the press gallery and we've only just now got our first chair women of yes. both the gallery and the uh, the lobby, the group that questions number 10. Yeah. But, 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 but they're actually still referred to as chairmen, aren't they? Yeah, there's been a poster defaced in uh, in oh, Parliament yes. in the press gallery this week. Yes, I think I know who did that, but anyway. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think but, I might know him too now. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that what you just have to keep coming back to is, OK, it's, it's not been great in the past, but rather than us all banging on about why that happened, we just need to think, OK, how do we make it better in the future? And then we just have to keep reminding ourselves why it matters. Um, because I think, as in any organisation, if you've got a, an interesting and diverse group of people working there, it's going to be more creative, it's going to be more productive, and, and it's going to be more representative of the people you're trying to represent. So it's, it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, I, but also, if we are an all-male team, you tend to yeah. cover all-male stories. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, it's human we're, we're, nature to be drawn not, to things like that. There's, there's contacts you're missing, so you're not talking yeah. perhaps enough to... to women and pieces you should be yeah. and you end up missing issues which are important to an yes. awful lot of our readers so yes. you know it is counterproductive as well yeah. I find. and that doesn't just apply to women I think we have an issue in journalism with kind of underrepresentation of BME yes oh without a doubt yeah and you know all these kind of things yeah. which need to be addressed mm. Um, let's move on to the rest of Prime Minister's questions. Sorry, there's a very long introduction to <laughs> a very short few words at the top of it by, by Theresa May and, and the, Dan the bulk of it was taken up with Jeremy Corbyn questioning Theresa May. I thought quite interestingly, he went on law and order. Now, this was interesting in terms of uh, this is meant to be Theresa May's home turf. She was Home Secretary for six years. It's where she built her reputation. It should be the one subject she is absolutely on top of. And you thought, here's Jeremy Corbyn. You know, he's usually gone on safe subjects in the past. He's gone on, you know, Labour territory, health, privatisations, failures, uh, and he moved into Theresa May's ground. How did, how did he do? Well, there was that moment last year, wasn't there, after the terror attacks, and it was just before the general election, and Jeremy Corbyn stood up just after campaigning and presumed, and he said, police cuts, Tories shouldn't have cut police. And I think that was the first moment where he took on a subject that until then 
was seen as as anathema for him. He couldn't talk about police, law and order because of his reputation on that and how he'd been portrayed for a year up to that point. Since then, he's gone on it a lot harder. So this, to me, is a continuation of that. And, of course, now you've got... What the centre of the argument was was about statistics or, you know, lies, damn lies are statistics, as we said, because Jeremy Corbyn had one set of official figures that said crime is soaring and Theresa May had the other of the two sets of official figures that said crime is coming down. And so you ended up in this huge argument. It's very ideological. It's actually classic PMQ's fair in which Jeremy Corbyn says you should stop cutting police officers. You can't keep the public safe on the cheap. And Theresa May says, no, the reason police are recording so many more crimes is because I made them better at recording crimes as Home Secretary, which, um, well, it's up to the public whether that argument washes with them or not. Yeah, and just, just to clarify this, there's the British Crime Survey, yes, which is yeah, one okay. set of yes. stickers, and then there's the police recorded crime, which is the other, which is why you get this mismatch. So they, they obviously pick the ones which suit the exactly. argument best. I, I thought Jeremy Corbyn was very effective in... He was his questions were more succinct than they have been previously. So he was kind of targeted, and and he did three questions in a row when he quoted or cited a chief constable from some part of yes. Britain, and then threw those words at Theresa May and said, "Is this chief constable scaremongering?" Quoted another one in the next question and said, "Is this chief constable crying wolf?" And, and you could see wolf. she was getting kind of slightly unsettled by this. There was one answer was a lot of stuttering when she came to the patch box to try to respond. Well, the reason why, of course, is because the crying wolf quote is famously from her to the Police Federation mm. when she stood up as Home Secretary and she said, you know, I, I paraphrase, I haven't got it in front of me, but every year I come here and every year you warn that, you know, police cuts are putting us in danger, you've got to stop crying wolf. And that quote has come back to haunt her ever since it's well it certainly you know, did during after the terror attacks where and i and i think it's very interesting that he's going back onto law and order now because it's clear although we've had the health services has dominated the agenda for the last couple of months i think this has been bubbling under and anecdotally i think a lot of people are now being affected by this general sense that the police aren't completely on top of things yeah and, and that's the, 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 the he is onto this, something with this. of all these it's exactly the same yeah. with health when it starts to seep into mm-hmm. the public consciousness and they're hearing either anecdotally yeah. or from first hand their experience. I mean, I've noticed in my local park, for instance, the, we used to have these uh, police and community support officers in there, and which was quite a nice place to go. And now they've gone because they've yes. been cut and we're seeing the return of the yes. drug dealers and it's yes. kind of got nasty again. And it's, it's tiny little things no, but like that. you imagine that, that happening but in every town you, of in the course, country? Then, then everyone's got an experience, everyone's sharing that experience, and before you know it, you've got a general sense that the, the Tories, who obviously, you know, law and order was their thing, if they've not got a handle on it, then... then hmm. it. And I, there was one bit I thought Theresa May came back quite well when she referred to his own, Corbyn's own voting record, that he had voted against tougher sentences for, for, for knife for crime. Uh, and, and Corbyn kind of stood up and said, um, I've been very clear, crime is wrong. And I thought, well, actually, you shouldn't really have to say that if you're a politician. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it would be slightly more, you know, you apply the negative test if you've been yeah. saying, you know, if crime is, if crime is a good Marvelous. thing, that would be... <laughs> but, then, but then again, Theresa May also stood up uh, immediately after that comment. She said, when we had a Conservative mayor of London, uh, gun crime was down in London, and now that we have a Labour mayor of London, it's up, which is kind of... I thought was quite a simplistic point and actually that's the sort of thing that's the sort of point she would criticise Labour for making Labour does make the point that 
crime has gone up and we have the Tories in power. And she's making the same point on the reverse in the one bit that she hasn't got direct control over. Yeah, and you could tell she was floundering a bit when she had to dredge up, dredge up a quote from Andy Burnham when he was Shadow Home Secretary, mm. which felt several kind of eons ago. And I thought, you know, if you have to go that, that far yeah. back in the past to find some defence, uh, you're not kind of doing very well. Um, there was actually some news out of Prime Minister's questions as well. We learnt that Dennis Skinner's 86... <laughs> which he was very think, embarrassed about. He I didn't... Check, this is not actually his birthday today. I ah. think it's in four days' time. So that's, ah, so uh, the speaker jumped the gun by, by wishing him a happy early premature birthday. But Dennis Skinner's response to that was excellent. I think he said something like, you don't celebrate age. Which is <laughs> a sign of he him going almost out bashful, fighting when he eventually he? Uh, yeah. retires as an MP. You know? I don't think he's ever going to retire. I don't think he will. <laughs> and then was this, Danny, if you could talk us through this, this, this answer to Vince Cable on Brexit and the NHS. Can you explain this? Because it's quite important. So, I think this is going to run and run. Mm, so like all big stories, it came right at the end just as everyone was about to switch off. Uh, Vince Cable says... Uh, you know, obviously he's campaigning against Brexit at all costs, and he says uh, when the US negotiate a trade deal with us, they're going to want their businesses to have access into the NHS. Can you guarantee that the NHS will not be for sale? And will you have you restated that to Donald Trump on the phone? And to be honest, to everyone's surprise in the press gallery, Theresa May comes back and says, well, the negotiators in the US haven't said what their demands will be yet and we, you don't know what they're going to demand and I can't predict that and we'll be looking for the best possible deal and it's Gosh. not a good look to say what are your priorities to look for a good deal or to save the NHS and to come back and say we'll be looking for a good deal and the key so, word there their demands yes. you know, we are responding to what they may put yes. to us I thought it was going to be a oh. tiny little kind of word but has an awful lot of weight to it mm. there and, and this is where Brexit could become very difficult. We've already had the row about chlorinated chicken. Mm. And when it becomes personal to people, and it's about, you know, there's a lot of kind of resistance uh, to any form of privatisation of the NHS anyway, but if it's big America... by Americans in their big, state of their healthcare. Well, we could talk about that in a minute, about yeah. the stories we had earlier this week, haven't we, with Donald Trump as well. But, I mean, so you can see why I was amazed by... Theresa May gave this response, and you can see why this story is already starting to run. My suspicion is that you could end up seeing a, some kind of backtracking over this by Downing Street. I think the afternoon Downing Street briefing for journalists is probably going on more or less now. And very often when something like this blows up and starts to run and you start getting stories online, you'll then get a statement saying... Of course we yeah, don't. We yeah. wouldn't allow any privatisation in the NHS, and that's, of course, what the Prime Minister implied when she didn't say it. But what fascinates me is this is where Brexit gets very tricky for the, kind of the, the, the Liam Foxes, the Jacob Rees-Mogg's, mm -hmm. the, the real kind of ardent kind of die-on-the-wall Brexiteers, because the whole vision was to pull us away from Europe so we could become a 51st state using an American-style free market economy where it's a kind of free-for-all. And that rubs up very badly against a country which has enjoyed a very generous social welfare system, has enjoyed a universal free health system. Mm. And you can see why now it becomes, are they able to defend this? 
And will it turn people against Brexit or not, do you think? Well, I think there is nothing that sort of sparks emotion in this country like the NHS. And so if anything can do is it'll be far more than chlorinated chicken because, you know, people could probably live with a bit of that. But I think the, the idea that the <laughs> Americans... Remind me to come out of your house. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that the, people are gonna, the Americans will be sticking their noses into our NHS. I mean, so last earlier in the week when Donald Trump... Um, tweeted about the state of our NHS following the march at the weekend, the, which the Mirror had backed, so we were quite involved with that. Um, there was absolutely across the board fury. There was, it's, it's, it's very few topics where we had the Mirror backing Jeremy Hunt's sort of robust defence of the NHS, which was fantastic. Um, and it's, it's one of those things in that, you know, we might all have views on the NHS and the way it's been run and the way it's been funded, but when someone else comes in and has a go at it, then, you know, it's it's our NHS. It's kind of like a big yes. brother, isn't it? Mm. It's my big brother. Exactly. I'll be the one to <laughs> If anyone should slag him off, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah precisely. And Brexit is uh, omnipresent. It doesn't go away, but today, this afternoon, as, as we're speaking, the 11 members of a cabinet and a, and a, a subcommittee are, are trying to decide what sort of Brexit path we're going to pursue and we're meeting again tomorrow because there's so much to discuss um you may say this is slightly late it's it's you know it's over a year since or almost a year since we triggered article 50 it, it's um kind of 18 months on since we actually voted to leave and they still haven't made a decision well if you were writing a tv comedy about brexit it would probably be a good <laughs> idea to have a scene in which everyone sits down to decide what they want from brexit more than a year after the whole thing gets started and but that is what's happening you know that uh, Theresa May has given a couple of big set piece speeches you've got Lancaster House and Florence at the bookends of last year and they set out things that she wanted but th the problem is that, that some of the key things are still in quite vague language you know we want to be uh, as close and as frictionless as possible the key word there is possible because the EU 27 have as much or more of a say in, in the art of the possible as Britain does. Britain wants to get the best things on all sides that it can. The EU says that's having your cake and eating it. So at some point, Theresa May and this war cabinet, as it's been dubbed, has to make a choice Better about things that they cabinet, want. So it's probably a more appropriate decision, yeah, a description. Bit, yeah. Well, you've got Boris uh, and uh, Philip Hammond in there on mm. uh, on the same table. So it's an impossible I would love to situation be a fly on the wall in for there. Theresa May, don't you think? It's just awful the rowing and bickering she's got going on around, and the bullying. I think you know the stuff that came out at the weekend about. Uh, Boris and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Michael Gove setting up a little triumvirate of terror. Um, it, it just felt like nothing more than bullying. Yeah, but there's a lot it's of kind of online debate about whether we should call Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and what they should be called, whether they should, whether they should be kind of, kind of you know, J-Bo or <laughs> Bo-Jake or whatever they could yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, problem with all, the, the problem with all the infighting and the sort of briefing to newspapers all the time is that the EU can see it. Yes. It's happening in public, and no matter what side of the argument you're on, it does undermine her position when she goes to Brussels because they feel that they might be able to demand more from her or they feel they can be more bullish. You know, you've got Michelle Barnier, who's the chief negotiator for Brussels, Almost every time he goes on TV, he'll come out with some sound bite or some quote that he knows makes him look strong mm. or mm. he thinks makes him look strong against Britain. And then, then that inflames hard, though, the argument some more. Well, that, this is the problem. <laughs> that 
they can get more of what they want in in Brussels from a negotiation if Britain hasn't made up its mind yet. Okay. Do you think they can get a, a deal which will satisfy all sides? Alison, that's the toughest question I've ever asked. Well, one day I think, oh, yes, we're definitely heading in the right direction. And then and then something comes out and you think, oh, really, we're never going to find some agreement. I thought about a fortnight ago that we, we did seem to be going towards a bit of a softer Brexit that everyone was being able to live with. And then at the weekend again, you think, no, they, they, they really aren't going to settle for anything other than a hard Brexit. Yeah. Mm, to I, me? Yeah. Uh, no. You can't get something where everyone's going to be 100% happy. What she might get, if she, I think the best possible scenario for Theresa May, uh, and potentially for the, for the country, is if she gets something that keeps each side just happy enough not to completely upset the apple cart after she's yes, signed the deal. And so the most likely thing is she'll find a solution which is everybody's unhappy with. So, well, some, yes. Somebody <laughs> reminded me today of there was an episode of, of Alpha V to Same Pet when they're trying to choose the <laughs> colour of a, peg, uh, a shed to paint and they do it by proportional representation and they come up with yellow, which nobody likes. <laughs> and, and I kind of, it may be like I, that. I, I've got yeah. this feeling that, that, yeah. you know, that, that the, the Brexit outcome is, yeah. is going to be a horrible shade of yellow. Whatever. Or it's going to be a sort of muddy brown, which is every single <laughs> colour of paint mixed in the I mean, same Yeah, that's, that was my painting skills aged about five <laughs> they haven't much improved. I know exactly that colour. Yes, I used to do that a lot. Uh, but it's not just um, the Conservatives in trouble over this. Interesting, Labour is having an away day uh, in about 10 days' time where they're going to try and resolve their Brexit differences. Where are they going for that? I don't know where they're going yet. I just know they're doing it. But I, I'm also hearing that it, it's going to be difficult for Corbyn this. There are members of his front bench team who are willing to resign over this if they don't move towards staying in a customs union. They're, they're, it's, it, the tensions are, are simmering there. So it's not just the Conservatives who are split on this issue. It's no. the, they, they divide both the main two parties. But I don't think it's quite as bad now in Labour, is it? And you kind of get the impression they are moving towards uh, some kind of resolution in a way that the Tories actually seem to be moving further from that. Yeah, I think that's that possible. It. But there is this difficulty, as we keep saying with Labour, that, that while the majority of the MPs, while the majority of the trade unions and while the majority of party members are in favour of a softest form of Brexit, yeah. they still have a large constituency of voters, particularly in their traditional kind of seats, who, who are voted for Leave. And I think, you know, Corbyn's done this what they call constructive ambiguity to try and avoid alienating either of both sides. Which I think actually in hindsight was quite a good move really because it's allowed enough time to pass and enough things to happen and visions of the future to be seen that it puts it in a position where it's slightly easier now to make a case for a softer Brexit than maybe it was to those people immediately after the referendum. I think one of the only reasons why you're not seeing as many headlines about Labour splits as you are about Tory splits, splits over Brexit because Labour doesn't have to make a decision. Mm. No. Uh, I mean, politically they do, but in terms of getting Doing something yeah, yeah. signed on the dotted yes. line with Brussels, it doesn't make that much no. difference whether they've decided exactly what type of customs, union or arrangement they want or not. Whereas when the Tories can't agree, they're the party of government. Yes. And it has ramifications that are much bigger than Labour if they're in opposition. Mm. Yeah, and we had a couple of interesting. We had a. a, a, a I was going to say we had an outburst from Anna Subi this week, but we have an outburst from Anna Subi quite a lot. But this one was particularly interesting when she said that Theresa May had to stand up to the, 
the Brexiteers, she should tell them to go sling it. And then she raised the prospect that if Jacob Rees-Mogg became party leader, she would quit mm. the Conservatives. Justine Greening know, also, also, interestingly, mm. suggested that she would have to rethink her membership of a party. I think there would be many others. Now, do you think the Tories could split or not? I, I was talking to a Labour MP yesterday who thought there was no way it would happen. He thinks that self-preservation key would just kick in. Um, I don't know whether they would do so much as split, but they might lose quite a lot of the more progressive elements of the party. I think self-preservation always triumphs in every political party except UKIP. Yeah, <laughs> but this is quite interesting what you're suggesting, Alison, because you're suggesting to kind of merge these two responses together is that that that, that the Tories then become a kind of UKIP a party of the nineteenth century <laughs> in all but name. Yeah. They they they're kind of overtaken by the kind of those kind of UKIP flirting type Tories. Yes, and I think if you you look at what a broad church it was, certainly under the early days of David Cameron, um, and if you if those people to the left of the party were all to sort of go, or then you, you're looking at quite a different setup, aren't you? So uh, whether that's viable in the country, um, whether that's really what modern Britain wants, is a, is a whole other issue. Very very interesting. Thank mm. you both that it was a great conversation quite wide-ranging but i I, all the better for it um do go to our website mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes that's a y e s you can subscribe and then you can leave a verdict or message if you want about what you thought of it um do send us some questions if you want as well uh you can follow me on twitter at at jbt mirror dan's on twitter at Dan Bloom one and Alison at Mira Alison. That's excellent. We'll be back again soon. Uh, thank you for listening.